everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini-series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini-series on the off-weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoy this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us for the second episode in the Meet the Manager series. We're welcoming back Stacey Havner to the podcast where she will turn the table and interview Ben Arnold and Andrew Williams, the Value Team's investment directors. Stacey is the founder of Havner Capital, an agency dedicated to helping boutique asset managers build, launch, and grow funds, and the host of her own podcast, Billion Dollar Backstory, where she interviews founders, portfolio managers, and investors who have launched, seeded, and scaled billion dollar businesses. Stacey will discuss with Ben and Andrew how they came to join the value team, the story of the value team's flagship product, a recent period of underperformance and a trend of value investors giving up, the importance of defining what the team is not and not to define what makes it different, and finally what it's like to be a specialist inside of a large organization, a boutique inside of a large asset manager, so to say. Enjoy. Well, this is a true honor for me to be back with my friends at Schroeder's on the Values Perspective podcast, but this time as a host, not a guest. I am thrilled to be here with my friends, Andrew Williams and Ben Arnold, and we are going to have a real authentic conversation today and tell some stories. Are you guys ready for that? Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for hosting us, Stacey. Oh, uh, it's the, the, the honor is mine. I'm really excited about this. And, you know, you gave me a, a blank slate on, on the questions, which I really appreciate. And I hope you won't regret that decision at the end, because of course, I like to ask questions about the people. And my favorite thing, of course, is story. So can we start there? I I typically, and you guys were great. I'm going to be totally authentic here. When we were prepping for this, I was like, okay, you know, we're going to do the backstory of the portfolio managers and blah, blah, blah. And Ben was like, um, just one second. Like, we're not portfolio managers. We're investment directors. And I thought, oh, what a good check for me. Because now I actually up the stakes on the storytelling because <laughs> that's the role that you guys are in. So no pressure. I'd love to have, and, and one of you, whomever is the brave one can go first to tell us a little bit about your backstory. And for me, kind of the gem in the backstory are the things we don't expect. Either a challenge you encountered on your way to becoming an investment director at Schroeder's and how that's kind of informed your day-to-day role now, or as is my story, like something that's unexpected that you didn't actually envision yourself maybe in the seat you're in and here you are. So that's my preamble to give you a little, some, uh, some guidance on where to take the story. And, and I will turn it over to either Andrew or Ben to start. Look, I think, um, it's a great question. One I've, I've thought about a lot. And I think for most people, you need to go quite far back. And I certainly need to go back to university, but probably actually back to school uh, as well, actually, kind of how I got here. And it's certainly not the the linear route that most people ex- would expect. With hindsight, I think that's that's kind of all to, all to the benefit of kind of who I am and where I am today. So at university, I actually read economics uh, and politics. And I left university in 2007 at a time when you know, the global financial crisis was happening. And I knew that 
what interested me about economics wasn't necessarily the all the maths and the equations, but it was the human element of it and the human beings yeah. in markets. So economics is often called the dismal science. The bit I loved about it was actually there's a, the reason for that is it's all about human behavior and human expectations and they're changing all the time. And also and, and narratives are you know incredibly important um, in, in economics as well. I'd actually discovered at university that I really loved writing. I didn't know this throughout the entire of school. I was actually kicked off uh, A-level English at school for being terrible at writing, which is a true story. My salvation was I'm quite dyslexic and at school I had to write by hand. So everything had to come in the right order. I got to university and realized, while I was still terrible at exams, my coursework grades were actually not too bad. They were quite good. Because when I write with a word processor, I was able to, you know, put everything down and it's all in a very bizarre order to begin wow. with, but I can then reorder it. And I found a real, you know, I got a lot from that and got quite passionate about writing there. So I knew I wanted to communicate. I knew I wanted to write. And so in 2007, I actually got a job with a, a small kind of capital markets research firm, but essentially working in the newswire side of that firm. So started as a, as a journalist and it would have been the most boring job in the world because I was covering commercial paper and medium term notes, which are pretty dull until the global financial crisis happens and they are literally where it blows up. So it was a fantastic education where I was able to speak to, to, to bankers uh, on the uh, on the desks uh, at these various banks when they you know would speak to me, but they wouldn't speak to each other and they were asking what was going on. And doing that job, I really felt like I really loved not only conveying information uh, to people in a kind of compelling way, that kind of, you know, excite, educate and inform was kind of that kind of mantra in terms of my writing, but also working with lots of other people. After a few years, I became editor of that publication. I realized I've been writing about markets for four years now, but I feel like a bit of a charlatan because I've never worked in a financial institution. So, uh -huh. actually, so actually that's when I joined Schroeder's in the investment uh, communications team. Again, a fantastic education because I was exposed to lots of different styles of investment and investors. And, you know, one of those was was value, uh, working for the co-heads of our team now, Nick Kirridge uh, and Kevin Murphy. And that was really my introduction to value. Some people say they're kind of born you know, looking at value. That certainly wasn't mm -hmm. me. I found it. But then I said, you know, why don't you go and read The, the Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham? So I did. And then, you know, I read um, you know, Margin of Safety by Seth Klarman, you know, a bootleg copy, I got off the internet, <laughs> and I just went down the rabbit hole. And thinking about other investment styles, it was just the one that spoke to me. It chimed with the way I thought about the world. You know, it wasn't easy. It was contrarian. It was going against the crowd. Um, it was very hard work, but it was it was worthwhile if you did that hard, hard work. And that very much just chimed with who I felt you know, where my sort of my values were in kind of not getting you know, caught up in, in in fads and fashions and things like that. So that's kind of how I got there. And then the value team was actually formed 10 years ago. And at that point, Nick and Kevin offered me a job on the team in what is my role now as a sort of junior investment director. We call them a product executive. At the time, I knew absolutely nothing about product, but I did know that the philosophy really chimed with me and that I love communication and the opportunity was there to, to build a brand and a franchise around something around a style that did not exist at Schroeder's before. And yeah, I just jumped in with both feet. Gosh, thank you for sharing that. I love that story. I mean, I love backstory in general, but there were some really special moments in that story for me, Andrew. One of them was talking about your dyslexia, which is a very vulnerable thing to share. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. You're certainly not alone in having some of those challenges. And what I find is that, you know, something like dyslexia or any of those types of kind of neurological things, when you meet those people, they are so creative. And you touched on that, how, yes, maybe it was a challenge for you to overcome, but also probably an incredible source of creativity in an industry that's not really known for creativity. And you talked about your journalism. For me, that that is such a thread to what you do now, both in communicating the stories and the narratives on behalf of the value team, but also in your role as a podcast host 
you know, interviewing is in and of itself a skill. So is storytelling, but story listening is a skill too. And I think you have both. So that was really special. Thank you for sharing that. Well, uh, thank you for asking. <laughs> okay, Ben, your turn, my friend. What an act to follow. <laughs> 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 it's interesting listening to Andy talk through his journey because I think we have very two very different journeys to essentially the same team, the same role, but actually a lot of it, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. So I'll go back to, you know, Andy's start point as a kid, you know, it'd be no surprise that at 10 years old, I, I didn't, I didn't dream of being an investment director in the value team of Schroeder's. Uh, <laughs> my big dream was to be a professional sportsman and, you know, depending on the week, it would be a different sport that I'd, I'd want to be a, a sportsman at like most sort of, you know, 10, 11 year old kids. But over time, doing a ton of different sports, uh, field hockey is what I, what I settled on. And over time was a, you know, a student athlete at school and at university, and then was fortunate, fortunate enough to be a, a full-time professional hockey player up until the age of 26. So training as a, um, an athlete as part of the Olympic program here in, in England for the, for the Rio Olympics in 2016. Now, you know, most sportsmen don't like to think too far beyond their sporting career because, you know, they, they love what they do and, and, and they imagine it will never end. But of course, it always does. Uh, and so, you know, when, when I was coming to the end of my sort of playing time, I looked beyond what a sporting career would look like uh, and tried to work out what I'd do, for, you know, for a proper job. And having studied finance at university and, and, you know, enjoyed reading a lot about finance and investing at school, there were some really natural appeals to asset management. You know, both elite sport and fund management are highly competitive. They're intense places to work. Yeah. And I really loved that there was the similarity. You know, this league table was in both. Both were a meritocracy. Oh, I love that. Um, so that was what really appealed to me. So that's what brought me to Schroeder's and the industry. And interestingly enough, the very first team that I worked for in Schroeder's was the same team that Andy first worked for. Yeah, Andy had left that team and, and was work on the value team by the time I, I had joined. And how I stumbled across the value team was actually, I was writing a piece uh, at the time, this would have been back in 2016, about what we call junior ICES in the UK, which is a, uh, a, 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 a an investment tax vehicle that you can set up for your child at birth, you can invest in it, and then at 18 years old, you know, they can access it and there's a bunch of tax savings that, that, that you benefit from that the UK government give you. And I was writing a piece how all the data from the Bank of England showed that about 60 to 70% of junior ISA money was in cash rather than stocks, which seemed mad because it has to be locked up for 12 years, 15 years, 18 years, until the child is of 18 years old. But it's all invested in cash. And so it's this education piece around, you know, how nuts that was from a from a you know investment standpoint. And it turned out that Nick Kirridge, who uh, as as Andy mentioned, heads up the team, was also writing the same piece because the Bank of England released oh the data, gosh. you know, about April, May every year after the tax year end. So we sort of stumbled across each other. Both agreed that it was, you know, nuts how all this money was stuck in in cash in all these different accounts. And that's how I sort of got in touch with the value team. Now, I'd always read about different styles of investing at university, at school. I'd read a watered down copy of Security Analysis by Ben Graham when I was at school, had a couple of you know essays and assignments at university where I'd, I wrote about value investing. So I'd already had this sort of warming, I guess, to the value style. But when I met more of the value team, I guess what I fell in love with was the mindset and the culture within the team. Having come from elite sport where you spend a huge amount of time thinking about performance culture, a lot of the things that the team talked about were, you know, exactly the same thing, just in a just from an investment standpoint. And very similar to to Andy, when I got asked to join the team and and help out on the product side, I had no idea what I was signing up for. I knew I, I knew I loved value. I knew I loved um, the, the the team's culture and mindset, but had no idea what an investment director or a product executive actually did. But I kind of thought I'll work that out as as I go. But if I'm in the right place and have yeah. the right beliefs it'll all fall into place. And luckily it did. And that was six, seven years ago. And and here we are. So lots of things that rhyme with Andy's story, but from a very different journey, I guess. Different person. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. Um, I, I even just love the idea 
how your team, how you connected with the value team around something that was its own narrative. Like it's totally separate. A project that you were both passionate about that aligned you as a team before you actually became one. And as somebody who played sports myself, I think, you know, the competitive nature is certainly inspiring and and every day is different. And we love that as, as sports people, but it is so much about who you're with on that field or at that table. And I loved hearing how that came to be. I also loved, you both kind of touched on this a little bit. And certainly I think there's a quote, I'll probably butcher this, but from Seth Klarman, Seth Klarman said something like value investors certainly aren't in it for the group hugs. (laughs) And that idea, right, of being rebels and thinking differently and being contrarian, you know, I want to talk more about that as we go, because certainly to have an edge of any kind, you have to be brave. You have to be willing to attract and repel. You have to be willing to think differently than the herd. And I can see so much of that in both your stories, but certainly then as you talked about sports, that was something that really resonated with me. So thank you for sharing that. Let's stay. I mean, this is fun for me because I feel like I'm in, I'm with my people right now. These are like the storytellers. Normally I'm with the portfolio managers and I'm like really having to pull these things out of them. So this is fun. Can we stay with story for a little bit longer? You both mentioned the value team. And I know there's a flagship strategy that goes back a number of years. And I kind of, you know, I believe that that products have a story. Everything has a story. Places have a story. Products have a story. Funds have a story. And I wonder if we can switch gears a little bit to talk about the story of your flagship strategy, just the backstory and maybe kind of bring it to how you communicate that narrative. Sure. So it's such an interesting question because, as you said, the, the the longest dated product we run on the team actually started in 1970, you know, 53 years ago, which is crazy when you think about it. Crazy. But actually, it's an interesting question because the the actual origin story is a bit of a bone of contention on on the team. So there's two versions. Okay. There, you know, as they say, there's there is not the truth. There is a truth, and there's two versions <laughs> of 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 the story of how it actually came about. So perhaps I'll talk about one, and then Andy, you can talk about the other. So the the one version of of history is that back at Schroders in the UK equities team um, in the sort of mid end 1960s, uh, there was a big demand from UK investors um, for deep value exposure from the UK equity market. That there was a set of investors that were happy to be long-term, happy to own unpopular unpopular stocks. And, and you know, there was genuine understanding that um, of what went along with the value philosophy that had come over from, you know, from the US um, that had been popularized there. And so that's how, you know, that fund got launched as the UK deep value sort of recovery type strategy and and that led to the to Schroders building that in at the end of the 60s and in 1970 it launched and and that was the start now that's the kind of i'd say the less romantic story i think i pr- probably prefer okay. the other one which which andy will will talk about okay i'll, I'll do my best so the, the other story <laughs> uh, and who knows maybe the truth somewhere in the middle but no the, the other story is that the fund was a dustbin portfolio so if you think about fund management back in the late 60s, very early 70s, this is before kind of unitized vehicles. It was a place where that stock that you've been holding for your clients that had done really badly, that had, you know, had, had, the earnings had disappointed, everything had gone wrong. You just said, I don't want to tell my clients about that. Instead of telling my clients, I'm going to shove it in this dustbin and they're never going to know about it. Now, the irony, of course, of that was, was behaviorally, people were getting rid of stocks at absolutely the worst time. That you know, fear had, ta- fear had taken hold. They capitulated, and as is so often the case, people massively overweight short-term negative events and don't look through that to see you know coming out the trough on the other side. And so you had this portfolio of dustbin stocks that are done badly, and then as it happened, it turned out they that portfolio ended up doing pretty well because. More often than not, wow. things weren't as bad as they seemed at the time. You know, insolvencies do happen, but they're pretty rare. And more often than not, companies you know do recover. When they recover, they recover pretty well. So, as Ben said, I think that that as a story, as this being kind of the, the sort of dustbin portfolio where you try and hide your mistakes from your clients, 
it's obviously a very romantic and nice story because it's you know and it really speaks to so many of the behavioral biases that actually create the value premium today right but as totally. ever as ever with things you know 50 years ago long before the advent of uh, computers and and uh, and data being kept the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of those two things what we yeah. what we do know is you know we can certainly trace the the value lineage of the fund even by people you know that that so that uh, uh, Nick and Kevin have worked for back to their mentors and their mentors you know back to the um you know the, the early 90s or 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 80s uh, so it's certainly been a we certainly know it's been a value product for a very long time. It may well have been from day one, like Ben's story, maybe from maybe about you know year five or six, like mine. But uh, either way, it's a compelling narrative and speaks very much to not getting caught up in the emotions of the day. So we like to think it's a bit of an urban myth. Yeah. <laughs> how how that how our sort of flagship strategy, no one will ever be able to. Um, I, I I don't know. I kind of never really want to find out. I sort of both yeah, want both to be true. <laughs> yes. It's like never never <laughs> meet your heroes. Yeah. <laughs> So great. And I love that idea of, you know, just the mystery around it and that kind of urban myth and the legend, you know, the sort of legacy (laughs) of it. And it it does feel like those two things are maybe not as unrelated as they might appear, Uh, certainly for the behavioral bias. Deep value is a very specific kind of investing. It takes a very specific you know, again, going back to that brave contrarian thinker to lead a portfolio uh, team in that discipline with conviction. And it also takes a very certain type of investor to your point, Ben, I think you said like, you know, some of this, you know, being kind of you know, having more of a long-term perspective. Um, this is not for the faint of heart. And somehow those two stories touch on some of those really unique criteria and characteristics of value. So I love that. That was very cool. I'm torn where to go next because it's such a it's such a segue into what's happened with value investing of late. And and I think maybe I want to go there. We were going to talk about that later, but I'm going to kind of up it because it's such a natural touch point here because all these brave value investors have really taken it on the chin. Uh, for a long time. And I wonder if you can speak to that. I mean, it's been a heartbreak for me to see some very talented value investors just give up. Like, And it's not because they don't believe, it's because the investors can't stay. And so in your role, both talking with the team the investment team, and also you know interacting with investors, what has that been like for you and the team over the last, I mean, it's been over a decade. I think one of the most important parts of Ben and I's roles is to make sure clients understand exactly what they're getting and and you're getting the right clients at the right point in time. I mean, value as a style can deliver you some spectacular returns, but they tend to be very lumpy. And you can have an amazing Mm -hmm. 12 months and then you know an awful 12 months and then it bounces back and then it doesn't, then it troughs for a few years. You have to be able to stay the course to actually realize the benefits of that compounding over time, which value has done, you know, looking at US equity market data, you can prove that back over 150 years. And so I think one of the biggest challenges of our role is actually, it's not just getting clients to convince them on value and getting them to invest in strategies, it's getting the right clients into the strategy so they understand what they're getting. And for me, you know, what the best client that you can have is one that fully understands what the strategy is and what it's trying to do. And they, they're sophisticated enough to, that they use that as a building block for their portfolios. I think the worst thing for a value manager ever is to have you know 100% of anyone's money because no one really can, can stomach that sort of volatility. But when you have a client that, that says, I have allocated to you because I believe in active management, I believe in in deep value and believe that the way you were set up, your process, the, you know, everything about your team will, will be able to deliver me the best outcome for that allocation. Those are the meetings that you go to and you know, value's been doing terribly. And they say to you, oh, I don't even want to talk about performance. It's exactly as I'd expect. In fact, if you perform well, <laughs> I'd be pulling you up on it because growth's done really 100%. well. 100%. So, yeah. And the, obviously you can't all have clients like that and we have to have hard conversations. But I think so yeah. much of our job is done in 
making sure you avoid the, the, the performance chasing money as much as you can and get the right clients in there because you know when things are going well the hot money makes you look great but as soon as the going gets tough and that flows out the other way we, we all kind of uh it does not that does no one any favors at all so i think that's probably the one of the biggest challenges and and uh and actually most rewarding things about, about what we do as well De- definitely definitely that. rewarding i mean the i think the the key thread there is just on you know honesty we know that we're not everyone's cup of tea and we just have to be super honest with with clients about the profile of returns what's you know what's going on to deliver that and what that means what and honest about what they're going to have to stomach for for it to work for them and actually i think some of perhaps the the proudest bits of work that we've worked on has actually led to clients not investing because they've said well yes. actually this isn't right for us which sounds so counterintuitive part of our mandate as investment directors is to is to raise assets yeah but as Andy said, if we raise those assets with clients that don't understand the strategy or we're just not suitable for, it'll only hurt us in the long term. And I think just like the investors take a long-term approach to, to, to the companies that they look at, we've been very much backed to, to have the same approach with, with clients as well. I mean, I think you know, over the 10 years that the team has been around, you know, 2020 sticks out as an incredibly difficult period you know, performance-wise. Incredibly, you know, one of the toughest calendar years for for value in in history you know as a team we lost about 15 percent. you know only about 15 percent of assets through flow you know and there were periods through that year where some of our funds were down more than 30 percent relative to the market you know when the market was down 20 percent and you know that was you know i think that's such a a strong proof statement to the the clients that we have and therefore reinforces the quality of the comms that we have with them that you know only you know 15 percent you know, left at the bottom when arguably a lot more could have justifiably left, you yeah. know, and capitulated. So, so that was a really nice proof statement. And, and I think it all comes back to that thread of honesty and Sandy said, being consistent with your messaging and totally open about what, what's involved when you, when you, when you're investing in deep value strategies. And I think just to, to add to that, you just made me think, Ben, so that, that period in 2020 when COVID hit was, was obviously very, very tough for value. Like let's not, it is just investing. Let's not take anything away from what was going on in the world. But actually, as a, if you just focus on the micro and what we do in our job, I think that was that was intense in terms of our client comms. Then we, I think we were updating clients at least every week, you know, throughout that period. But I actually look back at it now, kind of with a fondness and like what we were, the way we kind of thought about what we were trying to articulate and what we were trying to communicate, and you know. Uh, treading that line between you know we do not know what's going to happen in the future we have no idea something is something's happened today that's never happened before but you know these are the things that we're focusing on trying to reassure our clients because we know that selling out of the troughs is the worst thing that they can do um and so yeah actually it was that was bizarrely one of a, a very rewarding a very rewarding period from a professionally despite the fact it was it was very tough as well you know yeah You know, you hit on something I talk about a lot, which is that attract and repel mindset, which is very difficult, by the way, for portfolio managers to be okay with. Because to your point, you know, there's people want to grow, you have a business, you have a fund, you want to grow it. And so there's sort of a dangerous mentality around, well, all money is green and everybody is a potential investor for this strategy. I think you both hit on something so important that I want people to really hear and seven times to hear it once, which is every investor is not the right investor for you. And Every fund is not right for every investor. And we all have to be okay with it. There's plenty of money. There's certainly plenty of funds. And so this idea of of really finding your ideal client is so important. And I think you said something that if I put myself in the shoes of a portfolio manager would really hit home for me, which is especially with deep value, Investor behavior is such that they they will redeem at the exact time that you probably want more capital to deploy. 
And that alone should give them pause on this concept of, oh, well, every, everyone is a candidate for my fund. Uh, so I loved that. I love the bravery around it. And I think the stats really provide the data points on that narrative that you have some right fit clients in this strategy. And, and that's awesome. Really great. Thank you for, for taking us through that. Let's, let's go uh, in a little different direction here, which is, you know, there, despite the capitulation and despite some of the value shops that have thrown in the towel, there's still a lot of value investors out there. Maybe not a lot of deep value investors, but we'll say there's a lot of value investors out there. How do you differentiate yourself? This is a really tough question, by the way, because I think, but I know you're going to nail it because you're the storytellers, but getting to your edge requires that same bravery. It goes back to that attract and repel. So talk to us about what makes you different. I think first and foremost, the absolute devout dedication to deep value and the dedication to yeah. you know a, a deep value approach. The the hallmark of all of our strategies are that you would just have an unwavering commitment to value exposure. Whether value is loved, whether value is loathed, we make, you know, we make pretty clear promises that we're true to label, regardless of where we're at in the market cycle. I I think that's a genuine differentiator compared to 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 other value investors that 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 may move around. I was gonna say to actually kind of build on that and to pick up on the word devout you used then, Ben. Um, you know, value, you know, ask someone what value investing was 20 years ago and they could tell you what it was. Whereas today, value genuinely means different things, a lot of different people. Yeah. And devout value, sorry for all the puns, but you know, value has become quite a broad church. You know, you've had yes. values decade in the wilderness meant a lot of people style drifted, not towards growth, but towards quality, towards more GARP approaches. And actually today you often see in fact, uh, Kevin Murphy did a presentation on this back in 2016, where you kind of had value as a broad church, and at one end you had Ben Graham being the sort of you know old school classic classic value, and at the other end sort of Warren Buffett as he is today, not as he started, but as he's become in terms of you know thinking about businesses with large moats and high barriers to entry, and you know high quality of earnings and all those sorts of things. I think the differentiator today is when people ask what kind of value are you, and this is also really important for that client point, the clients that we were just talking about earlier, mm-hmm. when they buy you, they need to know what you're going to do, is we do sit in that classic deep value end. We think about all those things that other people talk about, moats, high quality is pretty much just excuses to put businesses on higher multiples. And I think today that is a genuine differentiator because the field of truly active deep value managers has been thinned out by 10 years of being kicked in the face, to use your own uh, your own phrase. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so good. And it's so true. There's so much here. I want to stay with this one for a while because you hit on some things I love. So the idea that value means different things is very interesting. It also allows you, and you did it wonderfully here, to sort of define your own category right? Imagine if you were in a category of one. And I think when people, you know, there's a a mindset around that, which says, oh, the category of one means I'm the best. No. Category of one doesn't mean you're the best at anything or better than anybody else. It means you're uniquely different. And the more we can get in touch with that and talk about that to our clients, the more we can tell ourselves that story, the more powerful it's going to be not to just gather assets, you know, across every, uh, everyone and everywhere, but to really go back to finding those ideal clients. So I love how you're leaning into, yes, value is this big, broad church. It's this big camp and there's lots of different styles of value. And let me tell you what we are. The other thing I want to talk about, because I think this is an interesting way to get to your edge is to say what you're not. So when you say we're not this, or we stand against this, or when we look at value investors who typically do A, B, or C, we are over here doing X, Y, and Z. When you talk about what you're not, it really helps you define sort of what makes you different. 
And you did that as you kind of did point counterpoint with the other flavors of value investing that are out there. I wonder if there's anything else you want to add to like, you know, here's what we don't do or here's what we're not. Sure. Um, we've probably got a long list. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the things that come to mind straight away, you know, we, we do not look at benchmarks at all. Our definition and our philosophy, our mindset to risk is, is that risk and volatility aren't the same thing. You know, so things like tracking error, you know, looking at benchmark weights, et cetera, is something that the portfolio managers spend zero time doing. Our attitude is that, that, that risk isn't around the volatility of returns relative to the benchmark. Risk as a definition is the probability of a permanent loss in capital, which again, to Andy's point, sits very much in the, the Ben Graham 1920s, 1930s, you know, origins of deep fundamental value. And so that's something that we're very clear with clients that, you know, if you expect us to be monitoring tracking error uh, or, or commit to a, you know, narrow tracking error ranges, that's not, that's not in our wheelhouse. That's um, yep. Equally, you know, looking at macro, not something we do. We're very clear about it. There's plenty of people in the industry, in this building that are happy to talk about it. It's not that we don't think macro impact share prices. We think it, it does over the short term. But history shows that it's very, very difficult to predict. You know, the world is such a complicated yeah. place. We make absolutely no promises that, you know, that we're going to spend time thinking about it. We think that it's ultimately valuation that drives share prices. Um, so, so yeah, there are two things that came to mind straight away. The absolute mindset to risk and, you know, we're purely bottom up. We definitely, you know, macro is not something in economics, not something we think Just about. Just one thing I'd add to that, which I think is particularly mm -hmm. important, given everything we've said about, deep value and yeah. we stick to it is some people hear that and go okay so you're pretty dogmatic about value then like you know you, you, you're old-fashioned you don't learn with the times the world's different do you not yes. update your views okay look at this metric that's what how can you be just so old-fashioned using that and you know it's something which you can see why people might jump to that conclusion everyone everyone is gra you know gravitates to the you know, the new kind of growthy tech investor, which completely gets AI and they, and they know exactly, exactly what's going to happen with it. I think something because of that challenge that's leveled at us, and actually this comes back to our team culture, and we touched on this at the beginning, about kind of always having a growth mindset, is, you know, while our, you know, while the, uh, you know, the investment style is, you know, unashamedly old school, like our approach to it is not. And one thing you know, we don't want to kind of go too far down investment process because uh, everyone will fall asleep. But uh, one thing we've, we've been running on the team since we formally came together as a style-based team is what we call the value archive, which is where all of the work that the investors do is um, is kind of saved. And what that enables us to do is, you can imagine as, as deep value investors, we come across, even when we look in that cheapest quintile, we come across quite a lot of value traps. And, you know, a huge amount of work is done on those companies, which would all be wasted because we, we don't end up buying them if it wasn't stored there <clears throat> in a place for us to learn from our mistakes uh, and learn you know, learn for the future. So the longer that archive has gone on, we've been able to look back. Let's say, for example, we can now go back. It's 2023. We can go back to 2018, pull out the drawer for 2018, look at every single company that, that, that the team analyzed and say, okay, we've now got a statistically significant sample size here. Let's say there might be 300 companies. We only bought 20 in the year, but let's look at all 300 and actually see: Did we normalize? What happened to margins? You know, what happened to revenues? Where we are we particularly good at companies in one sector and particularly poor poor in others? Is you know Nick Kirridge you know great at utilities but awful at you know consumer discretionary, whatever it might be? And to try and understand each other's blind spots and biases, and never you know throw the baby out with the bathwater and change the process, but just be conscious of mistakes or things that we've done in the past and always try and learn from them and update our process. I think that's something which is kind of nuanced, but I think it's particularly important for deep value because you're often just shoved in this pigeonhole of old fashioned, you know, I'm willing to learn about the future. Whereas I actually think it's it's quite the opposite. We're very, um, you know, we're, we're very, very inquisitive because the market is so often telling us we're wrong. <laughs> we have to ask, we have to double check that a lot more than the growth investors where the market just tells them they're right the whole time. 
I love that. And you know, it's such a simple, it's such a simple thing, what you just said of basically having a list of everything you've done and going back to it and saying, what did we miss? What did we do well? What did we do not so well? What can we do better? What can we learn? Uh, I had a client, also a value investor, also deep value a number of years ago, and and he has this red flag checklist, which is basically every you know kind of major mistake he's made in the portfolio goes on this list, such that he never makes that mistake again. He'll make yeah. different mistakes, but he won't make that mistake again. And I and it kind of reminds me of that whole sportsman mentality that Ben talked about earlier, which is you have to be brave enough to sort of, you know, look at yourself in the mirror with some with some authentic kind of realism. And, and I love that you're doing that. It's a simple thing that very few investment teams do. It's not easy to do. It's simple, not easy. And also it's not something that a lot of investment teams talk about. So I encourage you to keep, that's that's a really interesting part of the story. But to your point, we won't belabor process because <laughs> we've got other things to talk about. Um, I have one, as somebody who sort of stands solidly for investment boutiques, it's very interesting. I've become such good friends with all of you at Schroeder's <laughs> because it's a very big firm. It's been refreshing for me to meet specialists inside of much larger organizations. It's kind of like this idea of being a boutique within a big is sort of how I think about it. And I wonder, you know, how that feels being in it. Um, you know, you're active managers, you obviously specialize in a niche. Uh, you have so many of the threads that boutiques really, you know, kind of cling to and shine around, and yet you're inside this very large organization. So can you speak to that a little bit from an advantage, disadvantage standpoint without, by the way, saying something about all the locations you have and all the people, because that's like, we can't do that. Dan Mikulskis, our friend Dan, will literally just fall out of his chair. So what's that like? And also, how does that kind of position you maybe to gravitate towards a certain type of investor? Those are the two things I'm thinking about. Advantages, disadvantages, and how it affects your ideal client. I'll I'll jump in, I'll start, and sure. I'm sure, sure Ben will jump in. I think the first thing to say is, to be honestly answer that question, is there are both. There are definitely both some huge advantages. There are definitely some disadvantages. If you were in marketing, you could certainly you know, spin all the advantages really hard, but I don't think that would be authentic. So I think the first thing to say is, we certainly see some genuine real advantages, but they are very heavily caveated by the situation that we have at Schroeder's. And that is about that history we spoke about going back to 1970. That's about a business that understands exactly what we do. That's about having a team that have full autonomy in everything they do. We don't have that distinction between fund managers and analysts. Everyone on the team does their own work. We don't sort of tap into other uh, other analysts for their for their work on valuation anyway. You know, around the group, and that's why I think you know everyone thinks they're a special snowflake. But I think we are a slightly special <laughs> snowflake in that when I look at other big blockbuster asset managers, just the way they're set up means this boutique in a larger business thing I don't think would work because they might be leveraging a global research platform. And then you say, well, what's the kind of bias of every investor in your research platform? There's 200 analysts. Do you know what, you know, right. John in the Sydney office, do you know what he thinks? Do you know if he's value or growth? And they'll be like, no, I'm not, I have no idea. But so I think having that very decentralized research platform is absolutely crucial. And we have to kind of say that up front. But I mean, I think, and to kind of zoom out even further, we've spoken about this already, but the returns for value can be very, very lumpy. And I certainly think one of the advantages that we have is we have a parent that fully understands what we do, understands it's not in and out of favor. At those bad times, as Ben mentioned, there is never a tap on the shoulder from management saying, are you sure you should be buying? You sure you should be buying that stock now? Like, you know, it's just fallen 50% and everyone hates it. That never, ever happens because the group know that if that did happen, it would just trash your your credibility and your long-term track record. So I think, but the advantage of doing that is we do sit in part of a much larger, larger organization. We are a small part of a very big group. Whether we do well or poorly year to year, we don't live or die by that, quite frankly. The, yeah. You know, it's there's a big parent keeping the lights on. And I think that actually in some ways to counter the boutique point actually enables us to stay the course 
with with what we're doing because there's not this temptation to our oh, performance was awful last year and our biggest client are going to fire us if we underperform again so why don't we just hug the benchmark a bit this year we don't have that because the group back us all the way and i think that's probably one of the the key advantages that we have yeah of being you know, a, a boutique within a larger business I love that. Can I jump in? Yeah. I know, Ben, you probably have stuff to add. <laughs> I love that so much. Also, very interesting. There were some don'ts in there. Going back to like how you differentiate and how you can get in touch with your your edge. Sometimes it's easier to do it when you say we don't do this or we, we're not like the, you know, our peers in this way. So I love that you did that, Andrew. The business risk piece, I jotted that down as you were talking. That is real. That is one of the biggest risks that a boutique faces, like a founder breaks out and sets up their own shop. Also, one of the biggest risks an investor has in investing with a boutique. So that is a really interesting point, that being a part of a larger organization that's keeping the lights on, that's not forcing you to do things, gives you the ability to be more true to who you are and to what makes you special. That is great. I love that. Sorry, I'm like on the edge of my seat here because I love it. So Ben, your turn. I'll stop talking. <laughs> no problem. I mean, I, yeah, I agree with everything Andy's just said. I mean, you know, to, to the point you could, you could a, a big, a big, as you call them, a, a big asset management firm yeah. could, could try and, you know, create a similar setup tomorrow, but they can't recreate the history. They can't recreate the path yeah. that's, that's led us here. They can't repeat, you know, the heritage. And I think that's a huge advantage and, and all that backing and, and traders understanding what what comes with with deep value investing is 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 huge. I think there are a couple of things in the you know that that we see changes in the industry that do point to you know and it's not either it's not one or one or the other but do help us sure. with the 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 support I guess that we have around the rest of the building. So you know we know that you know there is the demand for more bespoke portfolios, greater customization over time and Yesterday, I was reading, you know, um, BCG's big report, annual report on 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 the asset management industry, and you know they're flagging this as one of their, their their big changes over the next ten years. If if that is going to be the case, and we're going to see increased levels of mass customization, there is a certain level of 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 heavy lifting that's needed to be done operationally for that. And and I think that you know having that within the building that doesn't have to come from the PMs is a real advantage. Mm-hmm. The The whole benefit that we would point to, a big benefit that we would point to of having all this resource around us, I guess, is that we let fund managers just focus on fund management. And yeah. there are certain things going on in the industry for the better, whether it's democratization of, of uh, you know, of, of assets um, that will put more stress, we think, on, on investors. And, um, you know, part of that, such as bespoke portfolios, there are, a lot of work to be to be done around that that that, that can be done with the, the the input of the fund managers but not wholly relying on them the other one is sustainability you know we all know over the last five years the sustainability landscape has changed a, a huge amount and asking investors to do all of that work themselves you know is is extremely draining traders have you know a, a big team of, of of people that can help us with that so a lot of the advantages around, you know, boutique in a big is around just letting fund managers focus on the on the fund management. Yes, I love that as well. And maybe the next time we talk, I'd love to even dive a little deeper on this because I I'm curious. I, I have this, you know, this thought. You're a little different because you're literally inside of an organization. But, you know, this idea that a healthy ecosystem is one in which the the bigs, the people and firms that have been successful sort of feed and nurture the next generation. And I don't see that a lot in our industry. And I think you're in a unique position and that you've got that. And I wonder how that kind of empowers you to launch new products and think about new creative things. So we're going to save that for the next time we talk. Um, because this didn't come up in, in the boutique within a big piece, but I think it's important. None of what you said would work without the right people. 
There are people within Schroeder's who believe in the value team and in this concept of a specialist within a much larger organization. And, and to me, you know, people first, people behind the portfolios, that's such a big part of, of what I believe is important in the industry, in the world. And so I want to talk about the human element a little bit. And, and for me, I think that often goes to authenticity. And, and we've talked about this, fund managers being brave enough to be themselves, to be able to show up authentically to investors, to the world. How has that journey been for you and for your team, given there's so much more <clears throat> focus on, on that now? I think I'd say, you know, when I when I joined the value team, it had, you know, been around for like a month basically. You know, it was it was brand new. And at that point, mm-hmm. you had some value investors that have been investing in the UK, some in Europe. We were we, we were we were launching some global strategies. And you could have looked at, you know, two sets of presentations or read two RFPs or you know, requests for a proposal, whatever it is, and you'd have absolutely no idea that these people invested in the same way. So I think the first thing and uh, was you know to try to create a brand and create something and create a brand halo around that very long-term flagship product. So that's I guess that's kind of step one. I think to answer your question, step two is let's how do we actually bring out the individuals in, as you say, yeah. a mark uh, uh, I say an industry where that is often actively discouraged in, in lots of respects. You know, yes. people find funds by looking at their are squared and you know their volatility and their performance and, yeah. and then like oh they who manages this it's like the, you know, the, the last question often um, <laughs> but you know when you're when you're doing those really really when you're a part of those really good due diligence pitches you often yeah. get the feeling that the allocators are really trying to understand you and how you think and why you do what you do and why you're doing this and why this is all you could do you haven't just been you know, given this vehicle because you're in the right place at the right time. And so as in our jobs, what we've tried to do, what Ben and I've tried to do is, is just encourage the portfolio managers to be authentic about, you know, uh, to, to coin your phrase, kind of about their backstories, about how they yeah. came to this and why they came to the team. I'll give you a quick example. One of our portfolio managers, Simon Adler, often tells a story about in fact, from the age of eight, he he kept a set of accounts on, on himself, which is his father got him to do. Uh, who, and his father was a forensic accountant. And this is very, very true. And he's a very talented, you know, he won't mind me saying, slightly eccentric uh, fund manager. But he really <laughs> focused on that. And it's and, and it's authentic and, and clients get it. Um, another uh, head of our team, uh, Nick, is very much into kind of endurance events and ultra marathons and has done this event called the Marathon de Sabler. And these are really you know, tough things to do require a huge amount of training, but are incredibly rewarding at the end of it. And there are some, you know, there's some sort of metaphors there in terms of being a value investor, I, I think, as well. Yes. Um, you know, I'm actually off to uh, South Africa very shortly to do a presentation on value. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is the cycle of, invest- of investor emotions. But I've, to make it personal to me, and I'm very much into motorbikes, I've called it the motorcycle of investment uh, emotions, and hopefully I get shot them for that terrible pun. That's hopefully the worst bit of the presentation. Um, but just to try and you know bring life to what we're doing to make yeah. to make things memorable. And some of those examples I gave you there, yes, they're a bit that they're reta- they're, they're more kind of retaily. They're more for like the platform rather than the the detailed sure. due, dil- due diligence. But I think yeah, encouraging that personality to come across is is something that. That we actively, mm. actively try and do, because you know, once people know what we're doing as a team, they they then kind of know want to know kind of why the culture is as we say it is. So good, and I love the motorcycle thing. <laughs> um, it's not easy to get portfolio managers to be comfortable talking about themselves or sort of like who they are as people or why they do what they do. Because to your point, the industry has sort of said that's not what anyone cares about. And all the studies, you know, I always talk about that one Kaya study where where the difference between what investment managers think allocators value or find important in due diligence versus what the allocator actually finds important in due diligence, that gap is so wide. The investment managers think all the allocators care about, to your point, Andrew, is 
the quantitative. And here are the allocators sitting there saying, actually, qualitative is as important as quantitative. And until we bridge that gap, there's a big problem, right? I mean, this is a failure to communicate. And at the end of the day, with all the funds out there, the allocator has to make a decision to invest with someone or a team, right? To invest with the people. It's not just, am I buying a fund? It's, am I hiring a human? And so I think what you're doing is great. And as an industry, we all need to kind of lift each other up to say it is okay to be a person. It doesn't make you less professional. It makes you a human. And and people do business with people. So I love that. Ben, anything you want to add around authenticity? I think I think the, the only thing I'd add is that, you know, when the team came together just over a decade ago, it was five. Today it's twelve. Mm-hmm. And we've had you know, we've added seven seven people and there's a huge amount of, you know, that people side of things and culture side of things, there's a huge amount of um thought and energy has gone into who we recruit as well. Because, you know, we want that authenticity and and, and we want to really understand just like people allocating to us we want to understand who we are hiring as well and and you know some of the things we do around recruitment are, are super interesting and probably for another time um but it's been mm-hmm. amazing to see people come in the team and really embrace some of that as well and also you know help <coughs> us grow as well so the team sort of over doubled in size and you know the people side of it has improved as well so that's been really interesting and actually, That's great. And, and I, you want to... Oh, go ahead, so, Andrew, please. Sorry, sister, I was just going to say, it's going to come back to a question about the people. I think Ben raises a really, really good point in that, yes, you're a, you're a value team and you have this style. You need people that are philosophically aligned with what you do. But once you're over that sort of philosophical bar and obviously you know competent at their jobs as well, you actually want as much diversity of thought and experience as you can get. Yeah. Because, you know... As I said, we're often looking at stocks that have fallen upon hard times for one reason or another, and you know their screening is cheap. But we're essentially saying, you know, why is the screen wrong? Why might this stock actually be be cheap for a reason or be a value trap for one reason or another? And it, it follows on from the hiring, but very deliberately in the process, we want to have that that challenge and that debate, and have people that have been, you know. Uh, you know, grown up in different areas, you know, people that have grown up in emerging markets, different backgrounds, different career backgrounds as well, because they all think about risks slightly differently. And yeah, trying to 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 bring that out. And I think to really answer your question directly, I think often, you know, sitting in front of clients and, when, and all our portfolios are co-managed, I think it's actually really powerful when you have two portfolio managers saying, well, actually, you know, we had a different opinion about this. And this, yes. and this, and this is how, this is why, and this is how we work through it and, 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 and all the rest of it. And this is how we challenged each other. And I think that's a, comes back to one of our, our USPs about, you know, all fund managers being analysts, having that debate as equals is absolutely you know, integral to our process and setting that bar as high as possible for inclusion in portfolios. But it was also a very good human story because it's not often you hear fund managers say, yeah, I completely, you know, I disagree with my co-manager on that. <laughs> but we try to encourage that because that authenticity goes down very well. And it's, and, well, and it's not just that, it's, it's the truth. We want, to, we want to tell the truth. That's what I was going to say. That's real life. <laughs> yeah. It is real life that people don't always agree yeah. or have differing opinions. And you have to create an environment, to Ben's point, to both of your points, and that was exactly what I was going to say. Um, Andrew, so you took the words right out <laughs> of my mouth, is that you have to create an environment where people are comfortable to be themselves and to say an opinion that maybe is different. And the way you do that is by, you know, it's not talking about it, it's being about it. So the leaders have to be authentic and be vulnerable and and be willing to challenge each other in order to create an environment where other people will follow their lead. That was great. I want to end with something a little, uh, well, I'm not even going to go into it. I, I go into it on my podcast, but it's basically a version of Proust's questionnaire, which goes back to the authenticity and kind of the people behind the portfolios. And we're going to we'll do this with you today. Um, I'm going to pick a couple of these questions and I'm going to add some caveats because I want to make it a little bit more challenging because you're a storyteller. So this isn't hard <laughs> for you. Um Okay, so I want to start with what book inspires you, but the caveat I give you is it can't be a business book. 
Okay. Okay. Ben, Ben, <laughs> okay. Ben, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So it was written by a business person. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to say it's not a business book. Well, I think half it actually is. Half it's autobiographical. Tell us the story, Tyler. It's, it's Let My People Go yeah. Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, so uh, the founder of Patagonia. Uh... Uh, I'm cheating, yeah. I guess, because the you know the, the second half is his business manual and his philosophy on 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 business. The the first half is autobiographical. Um, other than the fact that I love surfing, anyway, I think it's a great book. Uh, you know, he's such a sort of accidental capitalist. Um, I think I share a lot of you know oh. values, principles, not just on doing business but life as well with him. So yeah, I really loved uh, reading that six or seven years ago and. I've, it's probably the book that I've handed out the most to friends. Um, so yeah, I, I, and it's short as well. I, so many books are about five times longer than they need to be. But let my people go surfing <laughs> is short and sweet. Love that. I have not read that. I'm adding that to my list. Okay, Andrew, your turn. Can't be a business book. Okay, it's definitely not a business book. I'm going to say uh, good uh, meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which. It's become oh. this, you know, so Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor. It's become something like Stoicism has become something which is, yes. I don't know if it's like fashionable now or it just comes up on my Instagram feed a lot. But anyway, <laughs> it, beca- totally it becomes fashionable to say this thing. When I, I like to think I you know, got in there early. I'm contrary. I'm not following, <laughs> following the crowd. But in all seriousness, like people say, oh, you say that, you sound like a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit like you're uh, up yourself. But I think what I love about it is it was, it was a private memoir. It was never supposed to be made public, written by the most powerful man in the world. Like he was, you know, a, a semi-deity. He could have whatever he wanted. And yet there he is chastising himself about his impressions, about being a good person, about, you know, not, not trusting your emotions, about having that reverse clause, all those things. The kind of things that are really, really good values to live by. Um, and I think it just gives a wonderful sort of perspective on the world and I just think it's just fascinating that something which an emperor a few millennia ago was writing in his private chambers Eddie pick one of those quotes and it can be so relevant for us today so good and it is clear that you were a trendsetter so now we know that okay so we, we're gonna go from books to music now so let's pretend that you're gonna take the stage in a stadium and there's, you know, thousands of your adoring fans. And you're going to talk about Schroeder's. We're going to make it work-related. You're going you're gonna to tell some, some stories about Schroeder's. But before you take the stage, they're going to play a song. What's your walkout anthem? And Andrew, you can go first on this one. It's a song by a band called Blur. And the song is called Song 2. Um, and... Mm-hmm. So Blur are a Britpop band, uh, kind of been around since the early 90s. In the mid 90s, there was this Britpop battle between Blur and Oasis. And I actually love both bands equally, but it's it's almost the, the trite song to say. It's probably the most famous Blur song. It's really short, but it's just got a lot of energy. You know, it's often the song they put on and like everyone sort of starts jumping up and down and, and moshing. And it's just, uh, it just it, it's a song I loved at the time still love now and ultimately if i hadn't been sitting in this seat i would have loved to have been a rock star so it's just kind of yeah i love it oh it's so good that is so good i love it you're gonna have to quiet the crowd after that plays it sounds like they're gonna be moshing yeah. i don't know how you're gonna take it to schroeder's after that okay ben what do you got they should play <laughs> it for you ben? in uh, south africa next yeah, yeah. <laughs> so mine's rock as well so kasabian uh song called fire they're a british rock band um and this song has got a ton of energy and it's great for a walkout. But for me, it has a bit of a special meaning because before I got my very first international cap for for England, when I made my first appearance for the England men's team in Australia, the Champions Trophy back in 20 or 2012, it was. That was the song that was played for our walkout onto the pitch before we sing the national anthem. So it's always, it's a good song anyway. I think it, it's, it, it justifies itself anyway, but for me, it has personal meaning. I second that. It's a, I was it's a, wondering. It's a close second to Blur, definitely. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. Um, I love it. So obviously, if you if you if you both take the stage, you're gonna do. Was it called Fire? Is that what yeah. it's called, Ben? Yeah, yeah. And then I wondered if it was gonna tie back to your sportsman days, and I love that it did. So that's great. Okay, I'm gonna pick. Uh, okay, I'm gonna pick one to end with. 
Andrew kind of already answered it, but let's see if he had, if he stays with it or goes with something else. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'm going to stick with and it. And let's see. You're sticking with it? Okay, keep go with it. What uh, was it? It was. It, Say it again. I actually wrote, I mean, it's not really a profession, is it? But I wrote down, you know, rock star. I mean, I think I've been, I loved live okay. music, loved going to gigs, loved going to, well, before I had uh, a young family, loved going to festivals and things like that, which are huge over here in the UK. And I just don't think anything can compare to sort of having a few hundred thousand people, you know, singing back at you when you're doing something you love and you're, you know, making so many people so happy. So yeah, it's rock star. But uh, close second is investment director, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say, there's so many ties to your day job. Think about all the investors who are just like, you yeah, know, yeah. raising the roof when you're talking about your <laughs> Yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben, how about you? You um, can't say sports. No. You're not allowed to say sports. No, I thought you might say that. So I think, you know, I've always been probably like a slightly frustrated um, you know, there's, there's an inner frustrated entrepreneur in me. So running my own business, I think I'd love to do ah. one day. I think it would either be related to something similar to, to you know, to, to fund management or or it would be sport and fitness based, given, you know, quite passionate about that. I think one of the great things about our job is that actually, you know, I like that, it's, you know, it's something, it feels a bit like we're sort of running our own business on the team and that's the whole, you know, but within the all of the sort of safety yeah safety lines of of the wider business we're giving it quite a lot of autonomy so i get to scratch that itch for now at least so um so yeah so good you this has been so much fun i literally just looked at the clock and i'm like we could have been talking for two hours oh, i have wow. no idea so <laughs> we should pause i am here for any next conversations you've both been a joy it's been awesome to hear more of the narrative of Schroeder's and specifically the value team, but also to get to know both of you a little bit more. So thank you for your authenticity and for your vulnerability and for letting me join you in the studio again. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an honor. It's been our pleasure, Stacey. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you.